This is Safe, Stable, and Affordable, a Midwest housing podcast produced by the Polk County Housing Trust Fund in Des Moines, Iowa. Hi, I'm Matt Hauge, the Trust Fund's Outreach Director. In this episode, we bring you a panel discussion from our Affordable Housing Week Symposium focused on the supply of housing. Our moderator was Jenna Kimberly, a builder and developer who serves as president of the Home Builders Association of Greater Des Moines. The symposium included three panels focused on different aspects of housing policy drawn from the book The Affordable City by Shane Phillips. Shane was our keynote speaker, and you can hear his talk in our last episode. After this conversation about housing supply, look for episodes focused on housing stability and subsidy next in this series. Now, here's Jenna Kimberly to start the conversation and introduce the panelists. All right. Good morning, everyone. So we're going to start off with a round robin question. And Lance, I'm going to have you start us off. Lance is the president and executive director of Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity. Rising prices continue to be such an issue. Existing home inventory is at 10-year lows. We are seeing a very fast pace of construction of new homes in many of our communities. So let's start by asking each of you how you're doing and how you're continuing to produce housing in light of these extenuating circumstances. Well, I think uh, we just heard a little bit about the supply challenge, and uh, I think we uh, certainly agree all three S's are important on the aspect on there. And uh, it didn't just start to happen just yesterday that we have a supply shortage and that uh, we're not keeping up with the need. And you can see it even if you just look uh, just a couple years back in 2018 and 19, that we were seeing the material costs to start to tick up, land costs start to tick up. There was already some labor shortage problems on there. And then we hit 20 and 21 and crazy off the charts on what's going on. And when you think about that, uh, Habitat for Humanity, we're in the business of affordability. That's our business model. And so all those costs uh, put huge pressures on that affordability side. And so that supply challenge is affecting us on the affordability. And you think about uh, what has happened over, um, I think Mr. Phillips said that we've really been underbuilding for the past 40 years. And if you just look at the last uh, 10 years, so from 2010 to 2019, the median wage was increasing at 3% per year. Housing costs were increasing at 6%. Uh, and the last two years, there was good news on the median wage. It went up 8%. The housing costs were up 17%. And so that means that affordability gap has, has gotten bigger. Uh, it means for an organization like Habitat for Humanity that we're relying more on the community. Um, our funders like the Trust Fund and everyone that supports us individually and corporately, volunteers, uh, to be able to continue to serve. Because when you think about our affordability model, we don't get to pass on the costs to our home buyers that uh, they are paying what they can afford to be able to do that. So uh, it's a battle, battle and a challenge as that affordability gap gets bigger. Thank you, Lance. Next, let's go to Rachel Flint with Hubble Homes. Thank you, Jenna. Um, happy to be here today. Thank you, everyone, for having us and being part of this panel and having this discussion. I think it's so absolutely critical uh, to our future as a community. Um, for us, I would say uh, this past year, several years, two years, has been some of the most challenging that uh, we've experienced in, at least in my career, of almost 18 years in home building. And I thought 08 was hard, right? That was a, that was a tough time. But this, these supply challenges, uh, material challenges, manufacturing suppliers has been off the charts. 
I'll give you an example of the most recent issue that we have right now. We build um, four uh, townhomes together in a fourplex, and um, code requires uh, one electrical box for all four homes be there for the supply shut off to be able, the electrical box to be able to shut that off. The manufacturer of those boxes won't even give you a date of when it will ship. It is absolutely not available. So instead, we're just saying, okay, can we at least put one per unit, a shutoff, an electrical shutoff for the unit, one per, per unit on the outside? And code doesn't allow that, right? So we are begging MidAmerican and code and people to just say, we have no choice. The, the alternative is these people who have purchased these homes, we can't build them. We can't move any further. They're stuck at a certain stage. And so we have to ask ourselves, the requirements that we've put on, are they the right ones? <laughs> is that really worth it to us? Um, so we're having extreme challenges on supply. I know some people are 26 weeks on windows. We're lucky with the supplier we use. We're at 12 weeks, three months, three months just to get windows in a house. Think about that. Um, so it's very challenging right now. And um, for an individual who is, or a whole team actually, that's a bunch of control freaks, <laughs> this, is, this is really not good for us. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Next, let's go to Carrie Wardeman with Kading Properties. I thank you for having us and having this conversation. Um, as both Lance and Rachel said, yeah, this has been a really challenging environment. Um, I think that, you know, Kading works um, in greater Iowa. And so we have had just an outpouring of communities reaching out to us and asking what can be done to bring more housing to their community. So our demand is just like everybody else at an absolute all time high. And we're running into those same issues as Rachel talked about and as Lance talked about. And, and our goal is always starting at the paycheck of the communities that we serve. So when we start at the paycheck and our goal is to build a market rate housing unit that is affordable to the local workforce in the communities that we serve, and we see that something like garage doors double in price in less than two years, that makes a huge impact on whether or not we can continue to build that product and rent it to people um, at a price that's affordable to them and just really causes us to have to get real creative in cutting some costs. Thank you, Carrie. I'm going to continue with you. So Kading is known for really zeroing in on meeting Iowa's workforce housing needs. Can you share with us some parts of your approach and pro how you provide a product that's affordable for people? What's the Kading secret? Yeah. Um, thank you. I, I think, as I mentioned, um, we always want to start at the paycheck, right? So we're starting with what is the paycheck of the communities of the people that we're trying to serve? And then how can we meet the goal of building housing that's affordable to that group of people? So some of the things that we do to help um, minimize our costs and maximize our outcome are um, self-performing a lot of our work. So we do all of our own um, grading and site prep. We do all of our own infrastructure work. We do the majority of our own flat work concrete. And then we have a really good relationship with a network of subcontractors so that once we go vertical, um, we can really try to control our costs 
um, you know, different things like weekly pay to some of our small sum contractors to incentivize them to give us better pricing. Um, just trying to take any angle we possibly can to, um, to minimize the financial impact of the build. That's great. Thank you. Lance, this next one's for you. As someone who focuses on infill housing in infill housing neighborhoods, do you have any pointers for how we can make some public policy more welcoming to creating a variety of housing choices within existing neighborhoods? I think I'd like to suggest on the start, when you think about, people think about Habitat for Mandy historically thinking about doing infill building, public policy had a huge influence in us doing that. Uh, so if you think about the years of, uh, where there was not the investment or there is the disinvestment in many areas that then created land that was more affordable. And you think about the way zoning works than the local zoning, and this is across the entire metro area on there. It is very difficult to build a smaller affordable product on there. And so that actually helped set us up to really be focused on, on infill. Um, there's other pieces on there where we care about the neighborhoods and the aspects and that investment. So like the pointer question on there, what we can do on there, and this is, I think maybe a panel group response uh, as we chatted ahead of time on there, is if we could have every city, every community, and that's city leaders, it's community leaders, it's the people that live in the community, ask the question, do your houses reflect your jobs? Do your houses reflect your jobs? And, and then specifically as folks move into their planning and as city leaders do their strategic planning, that they're asking the question of how their housing um, reflects their community and the people that participate and work in their community. And then uh, for some of our larger cities uh, that receive some of the federal funding aspects that they have to do comprehensive planning, that they are making sure that they are asking those questions as they put together the comprehensive plan. And I also like to point out and, and that it doesn't solve all the aspect of supply on there, but um, when we talk about the zoning on there, we just ask that we stop all the nicks and cuts and scratches that are bleeding affordability out of, out of affordable housing on there. Um, it really does matter on all the aspects when you talk about window sizes, square footages, lot sizes, uh, garages, uh, beautification requirements. All those things matter when you're talking about that. Um, Mr. Phillips used uh, a car's analogy on the uh, used cars. I think if you think about uh, some of the requirements that happen in zoning, it's, you think about the car that, um, you know, we used to have the crank window, then we had the power window, that's standard. We all have to have the power window. Uh, now we have to have the sunroof and, and the aspects with the sunroof. Uh, and that really you can still have a safe car that has airbags and good brakes on there and it has a crank window. It'd be just fine to drive around. When you think about the consumer, when they're buying a car, they actually have the choice. They can decide if they want a crank window or not. When we do on zoning, on, when we put those choices, we're mandating those requirements. And that means we are leaving consumers behind when we do that. And now that comes, and I, I think I've heard a number of times from different decision makers, when we think about all these little nicks and scratches on there, that. It's only $1,000. It's only a couple of thousand dollars. So it does matter. $1,000 uh, increase in housing prices, uh, prices out 1,900 households in Iowa. And so when you think about our essential workers um, and all the people that are trying to, to move into the, ho the housing on there, that 
a few thousand dollars here and a few thousand dollars there is pricing out people that are working and living in our community. Thank you. All right, as a follow-up question, and any of you can step in and take this one. Some cities and states have gone so far as to simply allow multiple homes to be built on what previously would have been a lot for just one home. Shane mentioned this in his presentation as well. Do you think that's the kind of thing that could work in Greater Des Moines? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that's a great thing. I look at, I travel a lot uh, for my job, and, and some of that is just really to see other communities, see what other cities are doing, see what other people are building. That's what helps make us better. It's what inspires us and gets creativity. Um, and I look at Nashville. I look at some, some other moderate-sized cities that are our side, and, and it works. It does. But we have to ask ourselves, how does that work, right? What things are we doing that will prevent us from doing that? Does it have to be hardboard siding? Does it? Because I can tell you what people forget on hardboard siding is the fact that it needs to be painted every seven years to maintain the warranty and the effectiveness of that said hardboard siding. Every seven years. And let me just tell you how much it costs to paint your house. It's over 10000 now. Easy. As a drop in the bucket. And I'm going to ask you, on this affordable housing, do people have that kind of money to repaint every 10, seven to 10 years. So I think it's possible. I think we can do it. But let's ask ourselves what's best in the long run and how, what does that look like? That's great. Would you, either of you like to add anything? I, I think um, the point that Shane made earlier when his remarks um, regarding the things like accessory dwelling units really opening up the door to non-professional developers, to homeowners, to develop additional housing on the land that they already own, I think absolutely that can make a difference. Every we have to we have to chase down every possible lead at this point. So that if that's one more avenue that can be open to us, then one hundred percent. Absolutely. I, I oh. I'd just like to add yes yeah. on there. And, um, <laughs> yeah, Mr. Phillips uh, indicated that we need to act now. And I think uh, when I talk to my colleagues across the country and the pieces that you hear them, and particularly on the right, fast rising communities, they're like we wish we would have done something 10 years ago. Um, and so time is to be able to do that now. And when you look at our metro area across the metro area, you know, we are mostly zoned for large single family homes and we need to uh, find other ways to be able to um, add a different types of housing as part of that. Uh, we've got to open up more for low and moderate income housing in the high opportunity areas. And we need to, um, not saying we just do it across the board on there, but we need to have it happening in all parts of the metro area. And that uh, we also need to invest in the historically distressed areas on there. And so really the goal is that we do need to get to many more opportunities where we have mixed income and mixed use. And that we really want to think about that, you know, people should live near where they work on there and should have the good opportunities to go to the places they want to have to choose for schools and good opportunities on there. Thank you all, great ideas. Rachel, this next one's for you. One of the things that can be a struggle for builders is trying to build a consistently affordable product, working in many different city governments with many different rules. Zoning standards, variation on building code, design standards, you name it. How do you see the, the impact of some of those policies in your work? Um, 
got several examples of that. <laughs> I, I, I knew you it. would. How long do we have, Jenna? <laughs> um, <laughs> so a couple of things. Um, I don't know if any of you know this right now, but there is an obscene shortage of plumbers in this community. Um, I think we have, uh, we work with the uh, central campus in Des Moines, which is absolutely fabulous. And um, they have uh, a trades program, a skilled trade alliance that we formed with Des Moines Public Schools to help do that. And, and the recent enrollment numbers there, I think out of like 300 kids, like 117 went into welding, 19 kids went into plumbing, 19. So if you got any Hollywood friends that can make plumbing sexy, let's, let's work on that. Uh, but I'll give you an example. So there's one city in our metro that requires a licensed electrician to work on every single home, not just be in the community overseeing the jobs, okay? So I have, and, it's, and they have plumbing requirements, right? So you have to be there. Not every plumber is licensed. They have different people that work on it. They can come check the job, be there. That's fine. But because that one city requires that on every single house, I'm waiting... 10, 12, 14 weeks on plumbers for them to be able to physically get there. And it's simply because of that one requirement. I have entire plumbing companies that said, sorry, I'm not even gonna work in that city. They don't want us there and it's hard. It's not, I'm not even gonna do it. So that's impacting us in terms of, of that requirement that no other city in the metro requires. Um, I look at different zoning things, right? We had a community in, uh, in one city and we were trying to build another one literally a mile and a half away. And they wouldn't let us build it the same way we were a mile and a half and away because of new requirements. So we had to add all these additional uh, cosmetic things to the building in order to, to satisfy them and be able to build in that area. The problem with that is in the one community, our average sales price was about 229 to 230. We're now at 264 as the lowest price one. Now granted, there are a lot of cost increases that happen and my God, they are still happening every single day for us. I get a new call every day. It's hard to answer your phone. But I will tell you some of those additional requirements, jumping just that 35, just that $35,000, right? If you use Lance's number, the 1900, that eliminated 66,000 Iowans. 66,000 Iowans did not have that opportunity. So every dollar counts, and I stress this to all of you in this room who manage communities, who dictate things that happen in our communities, is that dollar worth it? Because there are people who will not have heat, that will not have different things in their homes that we take for granted every single day. Thank you, Rachel. Carrie, next let's go back to you. Do you have any examples of how regulation and zoning ordinances directly impact housing affordability? And what do you see that can be done to make a positive change? Yes, absolutely, thank you. And I think Lance touched on this a little bit, um, but, and I know that, um, that, it's, that this is also contained within, within Shane's book, but um, by right development based on zoning ordinances and building codes that are well thought out and very clear and objective and without subjective criteria can make a huge difference in housing affordability. Um, the time that we all take going back and forth modifying plans that 
we believe are in alignment with what building codes and zoning ordinances contain later to discover that you know something else will be required um, that costs a lot of money which then has to either go into that particular project or into the next project and worst case scenario when a project is outright denied um, when it meets the objective criteria that are written into um, a city's code um, then that's sunk dollars, completely sunk dollars that again have to be recouped into the next project, which overall just makes housing less affordable. So I think if if communities can take a look at existing um, zoning ordinances and really get the input on the front end, um, find out what the community wants that to look like, set those guidelines on the front end during the planning stage, and then dedicate those zoning districts through the comprehensive plan and then let it work let the system work trust the city staff to do a proper review of a proposal trust them when they say yes this meets all of the requirements and then go ahead and move forward with the project so that we can continue to build housing and not add extra cost due to ambiguity and subjectivity absolutely Thank you, Carrie. Lance, heading back to you. As prices have risen, and we've been worried about capacity of buyers in this market to access homeownership at all, this touches on some topics we'll hear about later in the day, but what are some things that you think Habitat and the region can do to keep homeownership opportunities open for first-time home buyers and minority or underrepresented buyers? Uh we probably have a long list that we could do on there. The uh, supply side is certainly the first piece on there. And as we said on there, I, I think thinking about how we do more on the mixed income, mixed use. Uh, I think there's some other components that um, that we can make sure we're focusing on. And I think it was touched earlier a little bit on the long-term affordability is something that uh, I think we think about more as a community on there and how when we have a unit that becomes affordable, how we keep it affordable for the long run, um, thinking about different aspects for that. And then on the finance side, we need to make sure that um, all the people that really uh, can take care of their resources and manage their money, um, that they do have the opportunity to move to home ownership if that's what they want to do on there. So that if someone can pay their rent on time and save a little bit, uh, manage their money well on there, and even if they don't have a stellar credit score, they should be able to purchase a home uh, on that. And I think there's some other pieces too when you're in a really, um, the way the housing market has been hot too on there is making sure that how everyone, how anyone is bringing their money to the table that they have the same opportunity on there. And I, uh, when we have, um, at the hot market that there are buyers that come with something like an FHA product or less on there and and the seller is getting steered to take the what could be deemed as the easier deal if it was cash or a traditional financing on there. Um, so we need to make sure it doesn't matter what that product is and that and that people have that opportunity to buy that home. And then the other piece um, that we've been thinking about and that we need to think about um, 
how everyone can have more access to information and what they need to know to become mortgage ready. Um, so finding multiple ways to get that out and help people to understand what it takes to actually purchase a home. And so this month Habitat is actually setting up on their mortgage ready that we're um, uh, anyone can uh, come in, we're opening our doors, anyone can come in and in 30 to 60 minutes, they will get an assessment with a little bit of financial information. They'll get an assessment of where they stand on their path to home ownership. And it doesn't matter if they are on the path to buy a Habitat house or if they're gonna uh, buy on the open market, that they'll know where they stand and there will be steps and the guidance on what it is they can do to work to ready themselves to be mortgage ready and to be uh, able to become a homeowner. Thank you, Lance. I have one last question for you all. If you had to come up with one big idea that's something new that Greater Des Moines can do to increase its supply of housing people can afford, what would that be? Rachel, why don't you lead us off? <clears throat> I don't know if it's a, a big idea, but I, I guess it's just something I want everyone in this room to think about, and that's um, as individuals, as a society, our beliefs drive our actions. And so I'm gonna ask you, what do you really believe? Because your actions, do they support that? What's your belief? I grew up on a farm outside of Watchier, Iowa, in an old farmhouse, and it was during the farm crisis of the 80s. So we had nothing. I mean, my grandparents brought us groceries every single week. And that house uh, didn't have traditional heat. So if we wanted heat, we walked outside and we chopped down a tree <laughs> and that's how we heated our house. It was a two-story farmhouse and it gets cold on the farm. I don't know if you know that, how cold it gets. But my mom talked about how she stayed up at night and didn't sleep because she was afraid her three children would not wake up in the morning. We slept in sleeping bags. We had stocking caps, mittens on. It was cold, okay? But I tell you this, as my mother laid in bed, staring at the ceiling at night, praying to God, not once did she ask God for a house with four inch window trim 33% stone on the front, or a 60-foot square foot front porch. So what do you believe? What are your actions? That's, that's what I ask. Thanks for sharing that, Rachel. Carrie, Lance? Well, that's a tough act to follow. <laughs> I, I think that's the closer. <laughs> <laughs> My contribution is not a new idea but it is a really important thing that we've been talking about all day so far. And that's that we need to forge partnerships. We need to work together. So as developers, as employers, as city leadership, as nonprofit organizations, we need to work together to find ways to remove barriers and overcome hurdles. Um, and that's the only way we're going to get things done. So as the conversation has been today, um, I just challenge everyone to get outside of our own selves and our own boxes and our own goals and try to reach across to those partners who we all share the same end goal of more housing and more affordable housing and find ways to, to work together to solve that problem. Thank you. All right, Lance, close this out.
Uh, one, thanks to the trust fund. Uh, we want more conversations like this happening on there. Um, I think we really would like to see us all thinking and working together regionally and thinking of housing as infrastructure. Um, we know for a good regional economy that we have to have good infrastructure and housing needs to be one of those uh, pieces that is there and is healthy for um, our regional area to continue to thrive. And, and we really need to think about it so that everyone has access to that infrastructure. All right. Well, thank you first and foremost to our to you three panelists doing the needed work in our central Iowa communities. I know it's not easy as a developer and builder myself. I'm, I'm in the battle with you and I know it's hard and I appreciate all the work you guys are doing in our communities. Thanks to the Polk County Housing Trust Fund for having us and giving us a voice in this room. We really appreciate that. And thank you to Shane for bringing your expertise from California our way. And most importantly, thank you all for being in this room. Thank you all for caring about this issue because as Carrie summarized it so beautifully, these issues don't get solved unless we all come together and bring our expertise and find a workable solution. So thanks for caring about this issue and, and hearing us out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Safe, Stable, and Affordable. Remember to follow us on your favorite podcast app and be sure to leave a rating or a review to help more people discover this program. Thanks again to our panelists who brought such great insights on housing supply. Remember, there are two more episodes coming in this series. Next is housing stability and following that, housing subsidy. Safe, Stable, and Affordable is produced by the Polk County Housing Trust Fund in Des Moines, Iowa. Find more information about our work on our website at pchtf.org.